0: Hello there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Autobiography of an Archive, A Scholar's Passage to India by Nicholas B. Dirt. The book is published by Columbia University Press and Permanent Black Press in India. Nicholas is the Chancellor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he's also a Professor of History and Anthropology. This book really is a wonderful collection of essays, loosely arranged along the the lines of the scholar's life. The chapters touch upon various themes, such as empire and the politics of knowledge, as well as the experiences of archival research. It really is an illuminating and lucid and challenging read, and I had the pleasure of talking with Nick just a few minutes before. Okay, so without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Nick to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book, and thanks a lot for agreeing to come on. It's my great pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So usually in these podcasts, we start by asking authors to give us some biographical details about their scholarly life before turning to the book under discussion. But in your case, the book is, as I suppose listeners will have gathered from the title, is in part autobiographical or written in an autobiographical mode at times. So for the benefit of those who have not yet read the book, I was wondering if you could start by first telling us how you ended up in India and why your love for South Indian drumming um, determined your early career in academia. Well, I don't know if it
1: determined it, but it certainly played a
0: role in
1: uh propelling me to uh to doing what I did. Uh yeah, I write about this in the book. Uh I do say uh that my book is only in a very, very vague sense uh autobiographical. Uh I, I don't actually say very much about myself as such, but uh but I do in uh in reproducing here essays, although they've all been somewhat revised, uh published as long ago as uh Well, let me say, written as long ago as eight, nineteen eighty nine that uh the essays here do uh do cover a significant portion of my of my scholarly writing and uh, and life uh but your question goes back uh to why indeed uh, I focused on India and I grew up uh in Connecticut outside of New Haven. My father was a professor of religious studies but took a Fulbright grant and went to teach for a year at Madras Christian College in Tambaram, South India. Uh, I was 12 years old. I did study South Indian drumming. Uh, I didn't unfortunately commit to studying Tamil at the time. I'm uh, eternally uh, unhappy that I, that I didn't have the prescience to, to do language study when my brain was still adept at picking <laughs> up language uh but i did uh, uh get very engaged in uh in, in different kinds of cultures outside of the college campus on which we were living uh by going into not just the city but going into Mylapore uh the area around uh, the Kapaleshwar temple uh and studying twice and sometimes thrice a week uh with a mridangam teacher who spoke no english at all and taught me solely through the rhythmical syllables that uh um, that constituted the the base for uh, for studying, memorizing, and then playing the South Indian drum. Uh, but it was, uh, as I say in the book, it was uh, the case that I didn't come away either uh, hugely. I didn't become a concert uh, per- percussionist, uh, nor did I uh, certainly think that I was going to going to become a South Asianist. Uh, but I did find that that India, South Asia in general. Constituted a kind of counterpoint counterpoint for everything I did subsequently in school and then in college uh, and became a way of thinking about uh, just about every issue i was um, i was I was thinking about uh, in my in my education uh, from questions having to do with you know what uh, what the meaning of Western civilization was in the most general and abstract ways that were part of my liberal arts education. Uh, to thinking through the American involvement in Vietnam, which of course became uh, another form of counterpoint for my uh, coming of age and uh, and early education, since this was in the late 60s. So I uh, did decide when I had an opportunity to go anywhere in the world uh, that I chose as part of an undergraduate senior thesis project to return to uh, Tamil Nadu uh, and uh, and and to take up. Uh, in some sense, uh, where I left off. Uh, and in particular, take up around uh, the question that uh, I had known, even as a 12-year-old boy, was uh, was was distinctive too and very fundamentally important uh, for South India as a region. And that is the growth of both Tamil separatism uh, and its relationship to the anti-Brahmin movement in Tamil Nadu that became so important uh, in its uh, subsequent political history. mm mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. Wonderful, thank you.
0: Now let's um, talk maybe a little bit more about the the idea of the book itself. I was wondering what was the idea behind bringing all these different texts together in one publication and um second sort of sub-question from that is when you when you brought them all together, did anything new emerge for you now as a reader of your text that you published um, over many years? Yeah, no, that's
1: a great question. Uh, so you know, this uh, uh, is the outgrowth in part of being at a stage of my career and doing the kinds of things that I'm doing in my day job that uh, have made return visits to an archive uh, somewhat more challenging. Uh, but uh, but the idea was originally proposed to me, in fact, by uh, the head of Permanent Black Publishing House in Delhi, Rukhan Advani, uh, who asked me to bring to put together a set of my essays uh, for publication in, in India? And the book has been co-published with with Permanent Black. Uh, and in a way, I, I, I credit him with the original idea. Uh, of course, he came to the idea uh, having put together a number of volumes first at uh, uh, in his life at Oxford University Press and then at Permanent Black, of of writings of historians and others who uh, whose whose work has 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 certainly participated in some of the major debates of our time. Uh, and uh, And providing retrospectives uh, uh, of of this work uh most recently he had asked uh, my Columbia colleague Porto Chatterjee to, to put together a group of his essays uh, and uh, uh, and to frame them uh, in relationship to the times and and contexts in which he wrote them uh and then he asked uh, in an interesting uh, uh, you know a variation of what happens with these books sometimes uh, another colleague to write the introduction, a kind of critical. Uh, introduction to reflect on 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 Partha's work in the context of uh, of her own work. This is the Menon. So uh, uh, so I think it was out of that experience that Rukin came to me and asked me to do this. Uh, now uh, to return to where I started, I, I, I had taken on some major administrative roles first at Columbia and then here at Berkeley, uh, and so uh, I had in a way begun to think back on my work. Uh, uh, in a way that one doesn't so much when one is uh, carrying forward and doing a new project. I had been uh, uh, finishing up uh, when this idea first uh, arose uh, a book on, uh, on the British and India in the late 18th century, the book called the scandal of empire. Uh, and I had also been then uh, beginning a new project on the relationship between the office of strategic services during world war two and the rise of area studies in the United States. And in particular the rise of South Asian studies. But I, I realized that was going to be a project that would only be f- completed once uh, I had time to to really spend uh, extensive periods of time in archives, including uh, in the in the National Archives in in uh, in, in Washington. Uh, given the fact that I had never, as a historian of India, working in Britain uh, and India, uh, never worked in in U.S. archives, uh, but. Uh, but i but i but i found that that was a kind of framing device for the book since uh, in a way my own work uh reflected and uh, certainly spoke to and was interwoven with uh, a great uh, deal of the uh, of, of the of the period of time and many of the issues that were dominant in uh, the history of area studies in 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 the US around south asia uh, so uh, so that seemed to me to be a kind of frame uh, i could begin Uh, with some of my early work that came out of a graduate program at the University of Chicago, in which I trained as an historian, but I trained with an anthropologist and in the context of an area studies group that uh, included Sanskritists and political scientists. Uh, Moved on to uh, get jobs in in history departments, uh, but always with a kind of uh, cross-disciplinary sensibility, and then at some point with cross-disciplinary appointments. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and thus brought with me uh, the, the kind of interdisciplinary inheritance of, of area studies uh, into thinking about my work in, uh, in graduate training in particular, as well as teaching across the board in, uh, in a range of American colleges and universities. Uh, and so I thought I could, I could position uh, my work uh, in relationship to, uh, to area studies uh, writ large, as well as to movements in interdisciplinary studies
0: more specifically. Mm Hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. It's um, nice that you're you're talking a little bit about that um, moving to a or thinking about moving and working in American archive. There's a wonderful frank admission that you have. I think in the beginning of chapter one, your first ever time in an archive as a graduate student, which has a wonderful line that uh, you say that your first thing you thought when you went there was that you panicked and thought about trying to find the nearest pub. But you didn't try and find the pub. You 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 stayed, and uh, you said. What you had was a, basically a transformative experience in the archives. So I was wondering, could you please talk us through your very first experience in the archive? And this was a colonial archive and how this come, came to change the way that you understood idea the idea of archives in themselves.
1: Right. Well, I think um, uh, I, I did actually find the pub, but I, uh, <laughs> I, I did <laughs> just to be Okay. In the interest of full disclosure, uh, it wasn't hard to find the pub since everybody uh, uh, who I got to know in the archive uh, would go to the pub both for lunch and and, uh, and sometimes for drinks after after closing. Uh, that is to say, the closing of the archive, uh, and uh, there were quite a number of pubs in the uh, in the cut, which is where the India Office Library was then located. Uh, but what I what I do try to reflect about a little more seriously is the extent to which uh, going to uh, an archive was a uh, a very daunting experience, to say the least. Uh, I'd been schooled in a way uh, uh, in the kind of interdisciplinary area studies, uh, Chicago theoretical context that I did my graduate work in to. Uh, to think about a project independent of archives, not that we didn't always think about sources, but uh, but rather uh, at the time, certainly under the spell of what was called ethno sociology in Chicago, we're thinking about how to get to uh, the heart of uh, fundamental epistemological understandings of uh, of South Asian cultural categories, uh, understandings and uh, and frames. Uh, and in, uh, in, 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 in constituting that as the, uh, as the object of knowledge, uh, we were strangely inattentive in a way to, uh, to the sources that would allow us to write any kind of history, uh, uh, when we actually got to an archive and did what historians have to do, which is to, of course, uh, plumb that archive, master a part of it and, uh, and, and, and use it in responsible ways to build, uh, evidence and then arguments, uh, so uh so in a way what i what i what i what i begin by telling in that in that piece uh, that I wrote uh, some years ago for a conference actually on broadell uh uh and his historical influence was the story uh of my own arrival story in in an archive where uh I encountered the need uh in effect to do an ethnography of the archive itself. Uh, and to uh, come to understand uh, uh, both the categories that uh, uh, were archival categories, hardly uh, as it were, South Asian uh, categories of knowledge, but uh, but archival categories that had to do with institutions, with institutional histories, with uh, with the careers and lives and uh, imperatives and ambitions of colonial servants who uh, who both uh, occupied uh, the offices and um, and in a way, through their uh, through their work, reified the institutional channels and corridors that uh, that made up the uh, ultimately the departments and the uh, uh, and 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 the entire uh, uh, infrastructure, as it were, of the colonial archive. Uh, the the story I tell, though, also uh, uh, has a number of uh, of, of, uh, of of ways of looking at the archive from the point of view of other kinds of archives. Uh, So I go back to the first paper I wrote, which I actually published uh, before going to the archive in the Indian Economic and Social History Review. And this was a paper I did uh, on the Pallavas and Pallava kingship uh, on the basis of epigraphical evidence that had been uh, published uh, and and sat in the library in Chicago. Uh, And which uh, uh, was, of course, interesting uh, uh, for me, not only because it allowed me to think through uh, ideas of sovereignty in the seventh, uh, eighth, ninth, and tenth centuries, but but also uh, brought me to uh, encounter a very different kind of archival uh, repository, and in this instance, uh, an archive that was uh, was 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 really quite literally monumental. Uh, that is to say, uh, an archive of sources that had been transcribed off of the walls uh, and temple complexes of South India uh uh which uh you know were uh, themselves part of the monumental building that uh, that was uh, that featured so so prominently in the in the architecture uh the built architecture of, of 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 the time uh and which reflected the importance of the temple the importance of certain kinds of uh genealogical relationships to uh uh to religious uh, uh, gods and and, and figures uh and the ways in which uh in effect the uh the history of sovereignty uh in, in India was a history of was a history that uh that had to do with forms of authority that were hardly strictly speaking political. But in the context of thinking about uh the temple complex as an archive, uh I was also reading uh Foucault and the archaeology of knowledge and thinking about the monumental conditions of uh, of of of, of, uh, of sources and histories uh, and as such uh, was able to try to link that early uh, uh historiographical exercise with the problem more generally of the archive and um, and then trying to frame the encounter with the archive uh, as uh, as an effort to uh, uh to both uh, engage it on its own terms but then to historicize it uh in ways that could become part of the larger uh enterprise that was uh, ultimately about figuring out a colonial a set of colonial forms of knowledge in relationship to south asian forms of knowledge uh, so you know it it wasn't just a kind of methodological exercise it was uh, it was actually uh, for me uh, in a way the beginning of my own scholarly engagement with questions around the uh, the way in which you can you can you can know anything about the past and how the frames of knowledge change uh, uh, across uh, uh, across history and relationship to the histories one is writing, and therefore the kind of uh, reflexive implication of one 's own work within uh, the larger set of uh, of questions that one is asking and historical issues one is one is trying to 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 grapple with
0: wonderful thank you very much it really is a really is a fascinating um, discussion in this section of the book, but now i 'd like to move on to to, to the following section, and this includes, I think I'm right in saying, if you're, your first uh, attempt at putting down the ideas or very early attempts of casts of mind, which is maybe. Um, the book or the argument for which you're most um, widely known. At least when people ask me, "Oh, who's who's on the podcast this week?" and I said, "Oh, Nicholas Dirks." They said, "Oh, the cast's of mine." So my my two part question for this is: the first is for those unfamiliar with your argument, could you just very briefly tell us its main thesis? And I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on the debates around it in the years since you've been published, because this goes back to my question at the very beginning when you put it again in this in this collection of works. What was your? Was, I mean, how did how did it feel again or how what made you did you think rethink anything as you read it again for this for this collection
1: right okay thanks well um you know again to just uh make the segue from what i was saying before to answering your question uh the uh the two kinds of archives that i that i found most uh most important for my first work uh, the hollow crown were a set of land records on the one hand that were uh uh Composed, compiled, and uh, uh, and and maintained uh, within a princely state in South India, although they followed uh, a lot of colonial categories, uh, but also then an archive uh, that was a collection of materials put together by a Scottish surveyor in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Colin Mackenzie. Uh, that contained uh, manuscripts, uh, temple rubbings, uh, maps, survey documents, and many, many other things of a, of a, of a sort that um, that had an only uncertain relationship to the colonial archive as such. And in fact, uh, the colonial archive struggled to know what to do with this uh, with this body of material uh, uh, throughout its throughout its own career. Uh, and in using these 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 records, uh, I. Uh, of course, was writing at the time about uh, sovereignty, which was a continuation of an interest that I began, as I just said, in my first paper on the Pulvas and uh, and then the cholas. But, uh, but I came, of course, uh, uh, to think about what the role of caste uh, in all of this was. Uh, the time I spent in graduate school was the time when the work of Louis Dumont was being ventilated uh, around the American Academy, both uh, within the specific South Asia fields, but also more generally given... Uh, uh, his particular form of structuralism and the importance of for structuralism and then post structuralism for rethinking historical and anthropological ideas of uh, just about everything including of course india uh, and um uh, and so uh and of course caste had been important in my in my earlier thinking about india uh, particularly through the anti brahmin non brahmin movements of south india so so in looking at the Mackenzie materials and looking at the land records i I focused on trying to uh, uh think through what what the role of caste was in all of this, and how much did it really resemble uh either uh, what I knew about caste politics in the twentieth century on the one hand or uh, the kind of uh, Dharma Shastrik, uh ideas of caste as uh, as they had been uh compiled in in Manu and then of course translated by bueller and uh, uh and and used by uh, by Western scholars and, for that matter, Indian scholars, to construct the kind of ideal uh, image of of what uh, of what caste uh, was, or at least the grammars and rules that uh, that generated the relationship between uh, the formal textual statements and the lived uh, political realities. Uh, and uh, and and what I discovered, of course, uh, and I write about this in my first in my first paper called "Caste of Mind." What I discovered was that. There was really very little uh, about caste in that archive at all. Uh, People sometimes had names that looked like caste names, but they had those names along with a lot of other names. And uh, there were places and there were families and there were political uh, uh, relationships and there were um, offices and positions all of which uh, seemed uh, at some level almost interchangeable with caste names. And, of course, not only were they uh, interchangeable, it turned out, turned out, of course, there were caste names that came out of places, that came out of uh, offices, that came out of uh, even feudal uh, um, uh, positions in, uh, in the princely state I'd been working on. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and which uh, suggested that caste was a, a, a much more permeable, much more um uh, uh well a system much more reflective of political economic and social uh conditions uh than it was solely uh something that uh, you know however you would construct a genealogy connected back to a, a a religious dharmic uh shastric uh kind of depiction of uh, of caste society Uh, And, of course, uh, I was well familiar at the time with the work of my advisor, Bernard Cohn, who had written about uh, the colonial census and had uh, suggested in his work that that ideas of caste uh, were imposed through the census and through other uh, forms of administrative uh, instrumentality. Uh, uh, But, again, uh, without any sense of uh, what what came before. And so I... uh, uh, and so i was uh struck by uh you know the discordance between caste that seemed to uh, be reflected in the archival reality i was looking at for the 18th and early 19th uh, for that matter mid 19th century and what came to be uh, uh both uh castes that as it emerged in colonial uh documents and then uh, uh forms of writing knowledge and, uh, and 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 even colonial anthropology uh, uh, as well, of course, with the debates around caste that were taking place uh, vis-à-vis Dumont and another uh, Chicago professor at the time, McKim Marriott, uh, who was teaming up with Ronald Linden as well, and uh, and so I I, I, I just basically uh, uh, decided to follow an instinct that there was a major disconnect uh, between caste as I found it and caste as it became. Now, when I wrote the book cast of mind, I put together a lot of different material, including material from the Mackenzie collection, including uh, some of my work on uh, on on seventeenth and eighteenth century south india uh, but i uh, I took on the question of the colonial census and and went and looked uh, in great detail at the way in which caste uh, developed across the census. I looked at the work of uh, Edgar Thurston in South India and H.H. H. Risley in bengal uh, i uh, I, I then connected uh, the story of caste uh, at the end of the book with uh, with the role of caste first in the developing politics of of India in the early 20th century and then with the rise of nationalism and looked at uh, debates around caste uh, with Ambedkar and Gandhi uh, and Periyar or even Ramaswamy Nayak who, who was such an important figure in the South and the uh, initial leader of the anti-Brahmin movement. Uh, and, um, and, in all of these uh kinds of domains uh decided to propose the larger argument, the caste as we had come to know it, uh had actually developed in a in a in a very uh uh, uh striking way uh out of the colonial encounter and indeed through the colonial encounter, through in the sense that uh it was it was the kind of process that 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 Cohn had identified that, that actually was productive of very different kinds of uh, lived realities around caste uh, and lived realities that then, uh, you know, in, in their own way, uh, sat uh, sometimes uncomfortably with the rise of nationalism, uh, which led, of course, to many of the debates of the 20th century. And uh, for that matter, those are debates that sometimes continue to the present day. Uh, now, in the uh, in the reception of the book uh of course uh the central argument was uh, was condensed and distilled and i was seen as arguing that the uh, british had invented caste in india which is something i actually specifically did not say or rather uh uh, uh put in in terms saying that i, I was not uh, uh writing about an invention this was of course uh, uh a few years after Uh, Hobsbawm and Ranger had made their argument uh, uh, around the invention of tradition. Uh, But, you know, of course, uh, uh, I had used in previous essays uh, words like invention and imaginary and construction. And these were things that uh, were part of trying to understand uh, how uh, historical categories could be imposed uh, by states, uh, by colonial regimes, and indeed by um, uh, by a range of forces that... uh, uh, that were not uh, themselves uh, in some sense organic uh, and uh, and I was uh, influenced by that literature. I was influenced by uh, the work of, uh, of of Foucault among others I mean, in a way I saw Foucault as a uh, descendant uh, not so much of Nietzsche but of Max Weber but uh, uh, uh and and it was it was always weber in some sense in the back of my mind uh although i argued uh, very much against of course the way in which he uh, constituted india as a as as a place and a type for his comparative sociology um but having said that uh you know my book got sort of uh, uh cast as it were <laughs> uh in the uh in in, in, in the kind of uh context of uh, the colonial construction of knowledge. Uh, and it got seen as, I think, increasingly uh, an argument of a very top-down uh, relationship, an argument about uh, a colonial agency trumping Indian agency, uh, and uh, and an argument about uh, the role of empire uh, 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 being almost uh, overdetermining uh in in relationship to uh to India's own capacity not just perhaps to represent itself what but to to but to be a major part of the story now given that reception uh i became concerned that the fact that i had spent you know a good deal of time and written many many pages about uh, uh, things organic, about uh, a small princely state, about villages and, uh, and and feudal warlords in parts of South India using Tamil texts and, uh, and and for that matter, a great deal of uh, ethnography done in Tamil, uh, that a lot of that got lost in the reception of Cast of Mind and that uh, people were assuming somehow I was just going and reading British sources and, and, and accepting British representations of their own, uh Of their own role uh and um and writing a a, a book that uh, eschewed and uh, and and occluded indian agency uh and i thought uh one way to uh you know to respond to that was by putting uh, my work on caste in a broader context uh so uh indeed uh i thought that a a book of essays that situated uh the caste argument as it were, with, uh, with work I did on uh, quite a number of other things, including uh, work on hook swinging, including work on uh, local rituals, uh, including uh, some prefatory uh, uh, discussion of what I'd done with the Mackenzie collection and in The Hollow Crown, uh, could better frame uh, the way in which the argument of casted mind, casted mind had been received.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it 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 really does work very well like that. I mean, when I, of course, you know, as, as when you when we're when people are students of South Asian studies, you read Casts of mind with all of the debates around it. Now nowadays, this is how you approach it. And so it was years ago when I first when I first came across it, and then now when you read it in the book as as, as one chapter of many, you are reading it out of that sort of hubbub. and it really and it, and this sort of the, the clarity of the argument there there really comes through. This is why I really. I asked the question because I really liked the way it it fitted in with the, with the chapters in this section. But um, now let's move on to the next section. This is a section called empire. And uh, I think it's the first uh, chapter in this, which is a really fascinating chapter called imperial sovereignty. And um, so my question in regards to this is, I was wondering, could you please tell us the ways in which as your argument here, the ways in which the British empire's actions in India challenged the prevailing notions of sovereignty at the time. time Right. So, Hmm. yeah, thanks.
1: Uh, um, well i'm 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 pleased to hear your your sense of the essays having worked in 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 some of the uh, uh ways that i hoped um and you know the section on empire of course uh, uh reflects work that i did in uh in the third book i wrote uh, the scandal of empire uh but it does uh, take uh, an essay that i published in a different context uh, on on imperial sovereignty uh, and uh, and frames it in uh, in relationship to debates that are taking place both in India and in europe uh, and of course ends up featuring in particular the role of Edmund Burke uh, in that in that set of discussions and uh, and I use Burke both to engage some of the questions that uh, that were circulating around uh, around British India in the late 18th century or middle to late eighteenth century uh, as well as to uh, uh, to reframe, you know, some of the kinds of, uh, uh, debates in political theory, uh, uh around, uh, the role of, 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 of social contract theory in particular, uh, uh, to, to, to rethink, uh, the role that the debates in India played in the rise of certain kinds of conventions and, uh, in the understanding of sovereignty in, in England, uh, Great Britain, uh, and for that matter in Europe more generally. Uh, so, uh, you know, so I take the uh, you know the kind of question of whether uh, mogul uh, authority in eighteenth century India was uh, uh, de facto or de jure, as it was put by Clive, uh, uh, and refract that through uh, uh, the kinds of questions that Burke was raising, first in uh, in fact in some of the uh, parliamentary hearings around corruption, uh, and then in the uh, prosecution of warren hastings in the impeachment trial to uh, uh to think through uh you know what is happening to sovereignty uh in uh in india and in its uh, imperial relationship and uh and i think about it uh of course uh too uh by tagging on to two other kinds of moments uh that uh, i didn't write about at all in the book uh, both of which were things that um I would have written much more about perhaps written on uh, gone on to write about as as books had I not taken a an administrative turn uh, the first of course, was uh, the uh, um, uh, the the whole set of uh events around the so-called mutiny or great rebellion uh, and uh, and 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 the trial i I don't know if i actually I'm, I'm just trying to remember if I put that in this essay or if I put this in a later essay. I don't actually in the one that you're asking about I'm sorry in Imperial Sovereignty
0: you talk about I, I, mean, I, I read all the chapters so I <laughs>
1: miss this yeah. my head as well <laughs> yeah forgive me but uh, but be that as it may I mean there are three there are three different discussions there the first the first really you know takes uh, takes Burke's contribution to European debates and features that the second looks at uh, at something else Burke was involved in and that is the controversy over the debts of the nawab of arcot uh, and effectively traces uh, genealogy for the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, back uh, to uh, uh, to what was going on in uh, in South India uh, in the late uh, 1760s. Uh And uh, and then I go on to talk about uh, questions of empire more generally, and 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 link the story of sovereignty to uh, the trial of Bahadur Shah in eighteen fifty eight, and then the Redford trial uh uh that takes place uh just after world war two. Uh and I look at the changing uh meanings, context, nuances, and uh and trajectories of, of sovereignty. And of course this returns me to the interest I had back in the beginning when I was working on the Pulovos, uh obviously in a very different context. Uh but uh again uh, uh my interest as a scholar uh has always been more about questions of sovereignty than about questions of caste. Uh, and so I did want that to frame the, uh, the 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 excerpts from the you know from the from the cast of mind uh, moment uh, as well uh, but I, I i I throughout all of this found uh, found Burke an incredibly productive figure uh, and just go to go, to go back to to Burke in in the eighteenth century uh he he uh, he was involved even in the life of the nawab of Arcot through William Burke, who was a cousin of his uh, and who worked for a while in the court of the, uh, of the Raja of Tanjore, uh, who was, uh, uh being beaten up by the Nawab of Arkad. Uh, and it was, uh, in part the debate uh, between those who were serving in the court of the Nawab and those who were serving in the court of the Raja, uh, uh that, uh, that, that first made for a great deal of writing about, uh, questions of sovereignty in India outside of the specific context of, of, of the Mughal empire. Uh, and uh, And it was very interesting for me because the this meant revisiting uh, a set of books that i 'd found when I was in Madras uh, doing my dissertation back in one thousand nine hundred and seventy five in the Connemara Library, which I had no idea how to read i mean it was a whole shelf of of arguments about uh, either the uh, the glorious run of the East India Company or the uh, the huge abuses of the East India Company. Uh, but it didn't have to do with with Bengal. It didn't have to do with uh, Warren Hastings. It had to do with uh, with George Piggott and uh, the Nawab and the Raj of Tanjadur, uh and a whole set of characters in Madras, uh, all of whom uh, had very important political lives in, in Britain as well. It turned out that up to 12 at one point, up to 12 members of parliament uh, were funded by the Nawab, Nawab of Arcot. Uh, and were uh, funded indeed to uh, to do things like advocate for the extension of uh, credit of lines of credit for the nabob uh, to protect a, uh, a, a complicated structure of indebtedness uh, that everyone was using to get rich on, and it did uh, indeed sound a lot like uh, credit default swaps uh, in uh, in, Mike, in Michael Lewis's The Big Short. Uh, which I had um, uh, not read, of course, at the time, but which I had read before uh, writing this essay, uh, that was out of the work I did for the Scandal of Empire book, and uh, and which which made me think again of how uh, how one can use history to rethink the present. But um, but that was uh, uh, that was a, a, a point in my life where I was going back in a way to thinking about uh, the role of British in India, not from the point of view of colonial knowledge. Uh, and not even uh, from the point of view uh, as i began this work uh, uh with the hope that i could simply uh bracket out uh, uh the colonial presence in india to get down into the uh, uh you know the, the the indigenous meanings of things uh but even with the idea that in fact having spent all this time working on empire it would be useful to think about these these questions even questions that uh, were were strictly uh, questions in british history uh, from the point of view of my experience working in India. Uh, and I, I think, you know, these kinds of global uh, uh, comparative historical uh, frames, uh, which take place within departments of history, I mean, I just, before this podcast, in fact, had a uh, defense uh, with a student here at, at Berkeley uh, in the history department. Uh, and it was a wonderful exchange with a British historian and another South Asian historian and an anthropologist. And the uh, the kinds of discussions that take place there are discussions that don't, don't always surface in the way in which we write our histories. And, uh, and, and so in a way, I was trying by bringing together questions of uh, sovereignty in India and questions of sovereignty in, in England and Europe, uh, trying, to, to, trying to reflect that in, in how I was imagining my own scholarly uh, uh, contribution.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, now let's let's move on to the to the fourth section, and this, we're changing focus a little bit. And this is changing focus a little bit in your, um, I suppose, in your life as well. And uh, the chapter I'd like to ask about in this section is where you reflect upon um, um, the future and past of South Asian studies uh, in in the USA. I mean, you touched on this a little bit earlier, as as you also do in the introduction. But I was wondering, here, could you reflect on, reflect for us a little bit on the history and the current state of South Asian studies? Right. Well.
1: Uh, I was asked to do a paper on South Asian studies. This was in the late 1990s uh, for a conference in area studies that was convened by the Social Science Research Council and David Zanth. And so I was, I was approached to do this out of the blue and uh, thought it was a, uh, would be an interesting thing to, to take on. Uh, and the essay itself was supposed to be somewhat impressionistic. It wasn't supposed to be a, a complete uh, survey of the field, but a kind of personal reflection about it. Uh, of course, as an historian, I, I began going back and looking at uh, some of the early uh, uh, work, in fact, even of the Social Science Research Council in the U.S., uh, and realized uh, that there would be uh, some really interesting things that could be written about uh, about the history of the IRA studies in the U.S. And I've always been struck uh, by how distinctive uh, the tradition of South Asian studies has been uh, within the United States, it's obviously for all kinds of reasons had uh, important uh, uh, effects uh, and great influence outside of the U.S. Uh, and of course, there's a massive circulation of of students and scholars that takes place, uh, and the U.S. has has occupied a kind of uh, the kind of role of the metropole in many ways through uh, through 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 the ways in which the universities have have uh, have organized a great deal of research and, uh, and also the training and, 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 teaching of, of, of these fields. But by the same token, South Asian studies in the U S is a very specifically, very profoundly American thing. And, uh, and the more I read about this, the more I realized how much, uh, the things that, uh, that I, uh, was uh, trained in and in relationship to came out of the U S experience, of World War two uh, which of course happened before I was born, and which I never really connected very directly to any of the things that i was uh, I was studying or or thinking about uh, so uh, uh, having that realization uh, sort of early on in in writing that paper uh, of course connected my work on colonial on the colonial sociology of knowledge uh, to my own uh, sociology of knowledge uh, and I began to think more broadly about writing something on the American sociology knowledge vis-a-vis South Asia. Uh, so the, uh, the South Asian studies piece was the first, uh, of several. Uh, it, uh, it did actually towards the end, uh, become a way of trying to think through the internationalization of area studies. Uh, and also, uh, uh some of the stresses and strains that globalization had been putting on the whole area studies model. Uh, but, um, but it it was also uh, you know the sort of first uh, dip in the water uh, around thinking through uh, as I just put it the American sociology sociology of of knowledge around South Asia, uh, and so after I finished doing that paper uh, I went on to begin uh, research uh, and I did allude to this earlier uh, on the role of the Office of Strategic Services. Uh, and uh, there's a lecture. There's a there's a chapter in the book that came out of a couple of lectures, and it's uh, really based on the the latest version of that lecture I gave, uh, that I call "Scholars and Spies," uh, which of course dresses up a little bit what was going on, since most of the people working uh, on India for the Office of Strategic Services were not spies at all, but they were uh, uh, sitting in a boring set of bureaucratic uh, carols in in Washington during the war. Uh, thinking about the issues that the U.S. would have to confront uh, both uh, in uh, the world theater that the war covered, but also potentially in the aftermath of the war uh, should uh, the U.S. be uh, be victorious. Uh, and it was remarkable to realize in the context of that how many scholars, not just in my own world of various studies, but in fact in the larger world of history and anthropology, came out of the OSS. Uh, I mean, just extraordinary stories. I realized that uh, Herbert Marcuse worked uh, for the OSS and wrote a series of papers on uh, the nature of, of, of fascist society. Of course, the recommendations he made, which were to uh, cater to the labor movement, were not uh, necessarily well received, particularly by the Truman administration. But uh, he sat next to hio uh, Holborn, a, a man who became a, a major historian of Germany at Yale uh, for many years. And... Uh, Here at Berkeley, uh, I'll be honoring uh, his daughter, Hannah Holborn Gray, on Wednesday night this week uh, for uh, getting the Clark Kerr Award. She went on uh, both to become a a major historian of of Renaissance political theory, but then also the president of the University of Chicago. So uh, everywhere I look, I see the influence of the OSS. Uh, There were seven uh, uh, presidents of the American Historical Association who worked uh, during the war in the OSS. Uh, But uh, the figure for South Asia who was most important uh, was W. Norman Brown, who was a professor of Sanskrit at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, He had been teaching Sanskrit for quite a number of years at Penn before the war. He was recruited uh, to uh, work in what was called the research and analysis branch of the OSS. And uh, and he set up what in effect became the India Desk uh, in Washington uh, and brought uh, a number of young scholars uh, to work with him. After the war, he went back to Penn and he took almost all of the scholars who he had hired during the war back to Penn with him to create the first Department of South Asian Studies. And so literally, uh, uh, the uh, creation of South Asian Studies came right out of that kind of effort in the war. And I didn't have to even make a, a broader argument about it. Uh, but in a, in a curious way, uh, it 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 uh, it had two major effects on the American Academy. The first, of course, the creation of a sense of need to uh, to study the world, uh, and the world had been very poorly represented in the curricula and in the constitution of faculties across U.S. universities before the war. And the second was in creating the basis of interdisciplinary studies. Uh, and they were interdisciplinary because during the war effort. Uh, There was a need for a felt need for strategic knowledge and strategic knowledge uh, was not the same as the knowledge of economists and political scientists and sociologists and anthropologists and historians. They had to work together. Uh, uh, And uh, and so I found that a very interesting genealogy of interdisciplinary studies, a little bit less flattering, perhaps, than uh, than I would have previously liked to think. Uh, But uh, one nevertheless that had a specifically American genealogy. Uh and so uh so in a way this work has been uh uh has been reflexive in that sense of 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 connecting some of the ways in which I've done my own work, and I see my own work of course as you know, as as part of a much larger uh, uh field of historical thinking and writing, uh, with uh, with that particular history and uh, and taking taking to heart uh uh some of the kinds of statements that have been occasionally made in response to Earlier books I'd written uh, that uh, all these Americans who were talking about everything from Orientalism to imperialism, it didn't take on the uh, the question of of their own uh, their own history and their own relationship to these things, and I decided, well, maybe we should.
0: And <laughs> well, it's nice, and uh, especially when, when I when I saw. The, the table of contents in the very beginning I was thinking how how is this all going to fit together but exactly when you do start to reflect upon upon uh, yeah your own position as, as an American scholar and the construction of, of of American knowledge then the whole the book ties together wonderfully um, wonderful at the end so um, I really we I realise we're running a little bit short of time so um, I just wondered if there's anything that you would like to to flag up that I've missed in my questions that you would like to highlight for the listeners at home.
1: Well, only to say that the uh, as I as I look back at the book, in fact, in uh, in thinking through this, uh, uh, you know, what I might say in in, in this discussion, uh, I did recognize that uh, that there are some framing essays, both uh, uh, reflected in my introduction and also in the last few uh, chapters of the book, uh, that aren't specifically about India uh, or South Asian studies uh, and talk about the university more generally. Uh, and they might sit somewhat oddly uh, in the book as it might be read, certainly by scholars of South Asia. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, that's where the autobiography uh, becomes the link, uh, not only uh, in the way in which I, I, I ultimately come back to questions of South Asian studies and, and how I use my own life as a way to uh, to introduce that into, uh, into my other uh, writing and work and that of many, many other colleagues, of course, in the field. Uh, but also to think through the role of the university itself. Uh, and, of course, in this context, it's the American university, uh, which, um, uh, which in an age of globalization, of course, is now uh, being pressed uh, to, to be global in all kinds of ways, some of them real and some just uh, symbolic or uh, or rhetorical, uh, but which um, uh, looked at, uh, I think, uh, uh, somewhat more uh, more broadly uh, can uh, can allow us to 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 take the university as perhaps the most successful uh, institution uh, in the global age uh, uh, in the sense in which it does indeed genuinely construct uh, the opportunity for real exchange for real dialogue for uh, genuine collaboration and cooperation across uh, across national and other borders. Uh, And so I get a little bit uh, maudlin towards the end of the book in talking about the importance of the university, the importance of of remembering uh, that the kinds of things we do as scholars uh, are wonderfully uh, supported and powerfully protected uh, within the space of the university, however political that space is. Uh, And perhaps uh, that might explain why it is I've taken a little detour uh, to do some administrative work uh, from my uh, from my my, my my scholarly work and ask indulgence uh, from
0: my colleagues uh, for having done so. Wonderful thank you um, and my very last question you've alluded a little bit to your current research interests but I was wondering if you could tell us is there something on the horizon what are, what are your future plans in terms of more scholarly work?
1: Well, I do plan to go back to the, uh, to the war, to the OSS. Uh, and I, uh, I actually would like to write a book about, uh, about the kind of ways in which, uh, the work that was done in Washington did configure a different kind of intellectual, uh, uh, uh culture, uh, that effectively took on, uh, the question of U S of the U S role in the world, uh, after world war II. Uh, and it was, a uh, It was a a sense of of the U.S. that was, uh, interestingly, very anti-British, very anti-colonial, but, of course, uh, that sought a different way of having influence across the world uh, that, uh, uh, you know, however much it was influenced by its own understanding of British colonial history or British imperial history, uh was of course uh uh, treading a a new imperial kind of uh uh, set of relationships at the same time uh so i I think there's a a, you know there are a number of other things that have been written in these uh, in this area of course i wouldn't be the first but i i think it would be something that uh, that will be the first thing i'll return to when i get a little chance (laughs) to go
0: back to the archive <laughs> wonderful. And that's a wonderful way um, for us to finish. So um, thanks again for coming on and thanks again for your wonderful book. Ian, thank you so
1: much. It's been a great pleasure talking with you.
0: Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Autobiography of an Archive by Nicholas B. Dirks. Really was a great read. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Ta-ra.